Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. One of the topics that has on occasion been pushed into the political limelight over a recent year or so is around gender identity. We've had rows about J.K. Rowling, the Labour campaign for trans rights, and Joe Swinson's election interview, to name but a few. It's an issue where finding a centre ground seems to prove particularly difficult, and indeed has proved beyond many of those involved in the debates around the issue. Underneath all of this are, of course, complex issues that are widely misunderstood. And with all that in mind, we are very much delighted to welcome Helen Belcher to the podcast to help educate us a little bit, help us try to make sense of this, how it fits into politics, and hopefully try to find a centre ground on one of the most polarising issues, it seems, at the moment. So... Helen, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us and please introduce yourself. Hello, Martin, and thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Um, I'm Helen Belcher. I um, was the Liberal Democrat parliamentary candidate for tw- in 2019 and 2017 for Chippenham. Um, so one of the Lib Dems who held and then improved on their second place in those general elections. Um, and I've done a lot of work on... Uh, issues affecting trans people for at least a decade now. So in 2012, um, as part of a small group called Transmedia Watch, uh, who is a charity who works to improve uh, the representation of trans people across the British media, I gave the charity's evidence to the Leveson Inquiry in 2012. I gave evidence to a parliamentary inquiry on trans issues in 2015, and also on free speech and no platforming at the end of 2017. So um, notorious, I think, is probably how I would uh, reference that. Or perfectly well qualified to come on a podcast such as this, I think. So, Helen, first of all, thank you very much. Right, let's get on to the issues. So we're going to talk about how and why gender identities become so prominent in our politics. But... Before we do, we, and certainly I, need to get a better understanding of these issues. It feels like there's quite a lot to get through. So, um, Helen, would you mind introducing the topic to us, um, what's important for someone unfamiliar with these issues to to understand? Sure. I think um, people can get very hung up on language or the rights and wrongs of a particular viewpoint. But I think at the heart of it, we need to keep in mind that we are, trans people are people. Um, We have our own particular journeys, our own particular struggles. Um, And one of the stories I like recounting is that I was uh, wheeled into a BBC meeting, oh gosh, again, about eight, nine years ago, uh, with a handful of other trans people. And they also introduced, I'm such and such, I'm trans, and I do such and such. And I, I sat there and said, well, I'm Helen, I run a software company, I sing in a choir, I'm the parent of two children, and I'm trans. And I think for what often gets lost in debates like this is the fact that trans people are people with many different facets, and being trans is one of those facets. It's not an all-defining thing. So trans people simply are people who uh, are have some unease about how they are referenced with respect to their birth sex. So some trans people will take steps 
to live as members of the opposite sex or a different sex. Um, so when we talk about trans women, we're talking about people who are assigned male on their birth certificate at birth uh, and have taken some steps to live in society as women. And trans men are people who are assigned female at birth and have taken some steps to live in society as men. And there are non-binary people who don't identify as either male or female. And what drives it is still the subject of a huge amount of uh, scientific and medical research. But it appears that it's something which is deeply ingrained. It frequently is part of somebody's psyche from a very young age. Um, <laughs> most trans people try very, very hard for differing lengths of time not to be trans uh, and end up with a, a condi condition which is sort of recognised called, called gender dysphoria, which simply means a profound unease with your gender. So, and the... The, the only real medical steps which people can take to alleviate this is to live as the opposite sex, live as the sex they believe themselves to be. Uh, and some people will need medical assistance with that, and some people will decide not to have medical assistance to do that. And by medical assistance, we're talking about cross-gender hormones, um, hormone blockers, and different types of surgery as well. And what's been wrong, I think, with the whole media coverage of trans people for decades is that it focuses very, very much on trans women and it focuses very, very much on the surgical aspect of it. And the trans umbrella is substantially wider than that. But I would say that the people who transition generally will head on and be on some kind of medical and surgical pathway. Now, surgery is not all defining because for trans women, whilst it's not exactly a walk in the park, it's substantially easier than the surgeries which trans men face. So you then have um, an imbalance, if you like, if, if one's legal sex was going to be defined purely on what one's genitalia looked like. So in 2004, uh, there is, after a series of court cases in the European Court of Human Rights, trans people in the UK won the right in 2002 to be legally recognised as the sex they believe themselves to be. So the Labour government in 2004 passed the Gender Recognition Act, which had particular requirements. And... Um, very few trans people have actually taken advantage of that legislation because the process to go through it, and we might touch on this later on, the process is quite medicalised, it's quite costly, uh, it can be very dehumanising. And so people tend to do it as a kind of, when they, they haven't really got any alternatives but to do it. Um, and there's around about five to 6,000 people in the country who've gone for gender recognition and we reckon that the population of people who have transitioned so those are the people who've made steps to live in their the gender they believe themselves to be is between say 70,000 and 100,000 
and the total number of people who are trans who feel some kind of dysphoria is probably around 1% of the population. So that's 600 to 700,000. And various studies in different countries seem to bear that percentage out. But the vast majority of that 600 to 700,000 will not feel the need to do anything profound about it. So the number of people who we're talking about really is at most about 70 to 100,000 people. So that, that's where this debate is being centred down. So you can get very hung up on language. It can appear very technical. And when I talk about transition, I talk uh, there's, there's the distinct steps that people might take in order to live as themselves. And you can look at transition in three different areas, I guess. You've got the social transition, which is you uh, coming out to your friends, your family, you making uh, the changes to your life and the presentation, calling yourself a different name potentially. Uh, so, so it's that that's a big thing. You have the medical transition, which is whatever medical steps the individual thinks are necessary in conjunction with the specialists in this area. And then a legal transition, um, if you like, which again, I would define by the Gender Recognition Act. So you can see that probably a lot of trans transitioned trans people will have a medical transition and a social transition, but very few have the legal transition. So hopefully I haven't lost you on that, but that's a kind of very brief introduction. And I guess when trans people transition, they, they generally have done, as I talked about, most people try for a long time not to be trans and end up generally uh, with a profound dysphoria that can manifest in terms of depression, various aspects of stress. Um, and so they then go and talk to medics. They, the, the process becomes quite medicalised. And you have this horrible point where you, you, you've got the sort of social and medical transitions going on. Um, but essentially, uh, what if I focus on trans women, so somebody decides that they need to transition to become female, uh, they will go and get uh, a depot or a statutory declaration. Stat decks are generally more common because they're cheaper. Um, they will change their name in the same way as anybody who changes their name for whatever reason will change it. Um, they will then get a letter from their doctor and they will apply uh, to the passport agency, to the driving license authority to get those two documents um, in their new identity. Um, and actually, you could go for a passport with just the standard declaration process. So somebody who's known you for two years of importance in society can sign various documents on that behalf. So within a couple of months, most trans people after transitioning have got the various identity documents that they need to navigate their day-to-day -day lives. And they, they, the, the Polestat deck enables them to change their names on things like bank accounts, on mortgage deeds, um, utility bills, all of these things that we use for proof of identity are already done on that basis. And the social transition then means that, yes, they will, you know, in order to function in society, you need to go shopping, you need to use public loos to do what everybody uses public loos to do. Um, you know, you, you, you're trying to find your feet in terms of style, work out what 
what your new style is going to be or styles because people might have more than one. Um, so it's a very exciting, but it's also a very challenging and very hair raising time of life. Um, and so, you know, I look back on that time, you know, I lost my job. I lost my relationship with my dad. And at that time, which was what, 12 years, no, for 16 years ago, 16, 17 years ago, I came out of things quite lightly by just losing my job and my relationship with my dad. A lot of trans pe- transitioning trans people I knew at the time pretty much lost everything, and, and I didn't. So um, I, I considered myself fairly fortunate. So if you, if you put there the social cost, significant social cost, which trans people often face as well, uh, you can see why a, a sort of social transition is something that people don't take that lightly. No, I can imagine. And it's, I think, really illuminating to see um, that the number of people we're talking about here is about the number of people, roughly, number of spectators you get in uh, Wembley for uh, an England game, FA Cup final with a packed house there. And it's such a sort of small number of people involved that seems to generate um, such a sort of polarising debate. But So it's very good for you to start the saying in a very sort of forgiving way that not to get too hung up on language. But I just want to talk or very quickly get your sort of insight or your thoughts on how should we be talking about this? Is gender identity a sort of sufficiently comprehensive term uh is that the right way to talk about it and then maybe just briefly touch on things like sort of gendered pronouns we've talked a bit about self-identification but if there's anything else we should sort of know about that and then we'll talk come on to talk about conversations about uh policy i think if that's all right sure i mean like a lot of science and medicine when you really get down to it it's difficult to know exactly what's going on so a gender identity is our current best stab, I guess, with, with sort of scientific basis of the sense of somebody has of themselves as a gendered being in our society. And so when that mismatches with the sense that others perceive them to be, that, that's what creates the dysphoria. That's what creates the depressions very often. Um, and so... Again, I'm just sort of bring it back to being polite here. So we have to accept that gender identity is is our best stab at, at defining what's going on uh, within trans people. Um, and pronouns, again, it's about being polite, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I can remember listening to there's an Italian trans politician, the first tr- Italian trans person to be elected to their parliament. And she um, ended up on numerous talk shows back in the early noughties um, and was repeatedly misgendered, so repeatedly called his uh, and, you know, shouted at for being in the women's toilets. And she, she talked about one interview where, despite the interviewer constantly saying to the, her opponent in the debate, you know, come on, be polite, uh, her opponent kept referring to uh her as he so she did the same back so she said well okay uh, you clearly don't understand the sex so i'm going to call you she and so 
uh, and demonstrated how absurd what he was doing actually was. So it's about being polite is the use of the pronouns. And I talked earlier about non-binary people. I kind of glossed over non-binary people. So non-binary people, I would say, are people who don't identify exclusively as either male or female. And uh, that that obviously also, if you've got an identity which is neither male nor female, society is continually trying to put you into one of two gendered boxes, then you can understand again why that might cause a level of dysphoria. So the whole pronouns thing is really because non-binary people won't necessarily identify with he or her, so we'll want a different pronoun. We have a, a tendency in our society with our gender pronouns to assume them on site. So non-binary people aren't necessarily going to look that much different from anybody else. So part of the reason that, that they would like uh, pronoun usage to become a bit more, uh, I don't know, formal. I don't know what, how you can say that, but, but as part of somebody's introduction is because they don't want those assumptions being made and applied incorrectly to them. So again, it's, a, it's about being polite. It's not about some kind of um, authoritarian viewpoint. It's about trying to, to work within a society which generally doesn't cope very well with trans people. Most transition trans people have a number of stories about um, dealings with official agencies not getting their name change right. Or, um, I mean, I, I have my deep poll thrown away by my car insurer because they, 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 they insisted on having the original and then just binned it at the end. It's like, thanks very much, guys. I now have nothing to prove who I am. Um, and that's not uncommon. So society doesn't deal well with trans people. So, you, you know, that, that's, that's largely where it's coming from. And it's therefore very easy to kind of misrepresent where a lot of this is coming from as some kind of extreme wokeness or left wing gone mad type thing. And it, it really isn't there at all. Yeah, Helen, I really like your the framing there about being polite because, of course, you know people who are sort of really up on these debates and stereotypically in London or big cities might um, understand a lot of the what we describe as wokeness. But um, I feel I feel that that's a kind of framing that's going to speak to people in all the bits of the country, and people know what you what you mean. Uh, and and it's not um, a sort of language you often hear in this in this debate. It seems to be what I see anyway on Twitter and things is it is um, feels quite complicated. Whereas when you put it like that, it seems very simple. Well, it is. <laughs> I sat in numerous meetings with politicians where one politician turns to another and says, oh, this is a really complex area. And I'm sitting there thinking, not really. It's about being polite. The technicalities become complex because of all the different exceptions that are made when the same-sex marriage uh, bill was going through becoming law the whole aspect of pensions for trans people who who remained in their marriages became a, a big technical issue and I can you know and that's part of where this complexity comes in because I can remember sitting for an hour and a half in a meeting with civil servants discussing what the pension rights should be 
for the spouses who survive the death of their trans partner. And their trans partner was a trans woman born between 6th of April, I'm going to get the year wrong, but 6th of April 1953 to the 5th of April 1954. And you sit there and think, this is an hour and a half, this is a really complex thing, but actually it's not complex to the person who's going through it, it's because the structure which we have to exist in has become complex. So, again, if you put the trans person at the centre of it, and what's right for them, it becomes a hell of a lot easier. Well, thanks for that, Helen. And that seems to me a perfect sort of segue to talk about some of the um, the issues related to policy, the conversations around policy, the specifics around policy. So I suppose let's start at the beginning with the, in some ways, seems to me the beginning with the Gender Recognition Act, something that you um, brought up earlier. So can you just talk us through your experiences of the, I suppose the specifics and the policies around it. You've given a great example with pensions. There's some of the other issues around that before we talk about some of the issues around women-only spaces, shelters, prisons, bathrooms, and so on. But, um, yeah, can we talk Gender Recognition Act first and the sort of policy around that? Yeah, sure. Um, British law, English law and Scottish law separately both have the concept of a legal gender um, and both use the term sex and gender interchangeably. Um, And that becomes important in only a very few situations. And they are marriage, uh, incarceration at Her Majesty's pleasure in a prison, inheritance of titles and various other gendered provision, which is typically things like pensions. So uh, the Gender Recognition Act in 2004, as I said, was forced on the Labour government by the European Court of Human Rights um, about a trans woman who wanted the right to marry the man she had been living with for a long time. The European Court said, of course, she has the right to marry this person. And at the time, there wasn't, a thing as, there wasn't such a thing as same-sex marriage. So the way that that was resolved, the Gender Recognition Act allows a trans person to have their birth certificate reissued as if they had been born the way they are presenting now. So, um, and at the time, there was a fear about fraudulent applications. Um, so there was a process which was put in place. The trans person needed to supply two pieces of medical evidence uh, from two separate medical practitioners who were on a list maintained by a panel. And the magic word gender dysphoria must appear in at least one of these diagnoses. There must, the applicant must also provide evidence of having lived in their acquired gender, to use the terminology, for a minimum of two years. Uh, prior to the application date, they must pay a fee. And with the introduction of the Same-Sex Marriage Act, if the applicant is in a civil partnership or in a marriage, they must have uh, consent from their civil partner or their spouse to gain gender recognition. So that whole bundle of evidence, uh, and the medical reports can be quite costly, it can be quite time-consuming to pull together the other evidence that you need. 
That bundle of evidence is then sent to a panel, gender recognition panel. The applicant never meets that panel. And the panel sits there, sits through the paperwork and decides on the basis of the paperwork alone whether the person has met some arbitrary guidelines which they follow, which is enough for them to be declared the gender that, that the trans person has applied to be. Uh, and if they decide no, then the trans person has no right of appeal. They basically have to start again. And the panel has a reputation for being very picky, particularly on the medical evidence. So um, there are various procedures that trans women can have done, which may, you know, so in order to create the female genitalia, you have to remove the male genitalia. And so they have rejected uh, applicant applications which state that the female genitalia have been created but haven't referenced the removal of the male genitalia, for example, which would be a blooming medical miracle if that was able to happen, but there you go. I know of another applicant who had been the parent of a child who was at the time of application three years old, and the panel turned this person down on the basis that they weren't sure that this this applicant wouldn't become a, want to become a parent again. Now, that's not anywhere within the legislation. It was just the panel accruing rights. So that's why only five to 6,000 trans people have applied for gender recognition. And they're typically people who've done it for pension rights or a much smaller number uh, because they needed it for marriage, to get married um, to in, in the style in which they want. So... The same-sex marriage act still retains a distinction between same-sex marriages and opposite-sex marriages. So if a trans woman, trans woman can marry a man, then they have two options. They can get a gender recognition certificate and marry the man as a woman, or they can enter a same-sex marriage and enter the marriage as a man. But then if they do that, then their husband will have far fewer spousal uh, pension rights um, than if they married as a woman, for example. So there's all sorts of weird technical distinctions in place. And I don't think most people these days think necessarily about the gender of the person they're marrying. They're marrying the person they love. And that's, that's what it should all be about. And we could get uh, Baroness Hunt, Ruth Hunt of Stonewall, in her maiden speech in the House of Lords, made the very good point that actually we could resolve some of this issue by abolishing the distinction between same-sex and opposite-sex marriage. So, so there's an awful lot of work going around to overcome hurdles which government has put up in other bits of legislation. So that's, what, that's all the Gender Recognition Act does. Is it enables a trans person to gain a birth certificate in their acquired sex, and that can be important when you're going to talk to the vicar about getting married or the registrar about getting married, it can be important when you're going for certain jobs. So if you're going for jobs which require security clearance, they may ask for a copy of your birth certificate. Um, but it's, it's application elsewhere is very, very limited. And, and we need to bear in mind that the birth certificates themselves state on the document, these are not identity documents. So, you know, it's very, very limited application, the Gender Recognition Act. Great. Well, thank you. And um, as, you, uh, as you say, so much of this, at least many of these issues seem to come under 
of basic equalities um, issues, and I'm quite surprised that they haven't sort of been picked up. The difference between sort of same-sex and opposite-sex marriage and pension rights and things like that seem like they would have been picked up. They would have been potentially picked up um, in other things, and yet have been sort of swelled as in swept up into this debate as it has swelled to encompass uh, issues. So. If you don't mind, but now to move on to some of the more sort of controversial Bose elements in this. And one of the most, uh, I think, vocally sort of covered is what we call women-only spaces. And there seems to be a lot of misinformation and con- there certainly is a bit of contro- a lot of controversy in this area. So what's your take on the issue specifically, but then also the wider sort of debate about Okay, Um, I talked at the beginning about social transition and part of social transition is using the single sex spaces which are appropriate to your lived-in gender. So, for example, if a trans woman um, was a newly transitioned trans woman needed to go to the loo and there weren't unisex loos around, um, or even if there are unisex loos actually, they would have a right to use the women's loo. Women's toilet spaces in general uh, were gendered uh, in Victorian times, uh, largely as a result to protect men, (laughs) really, um, from the prying eyes of women as they perceived it. So they shoved the women off into different places. Um, And, uh, but, but they're not governed by any particular law other than things like um, public order offences. So if you commit an offence, a public order offence in a toilet, it's a public order offence. It's not a gendered offence. So so trans women have always had the right, and it's always been legal for trans women to use women's spaces, women's toilets, women's changing rooms and so on. Now, Um, we can discuss a bit later, I think, why this might have arisen. But because trans people's lives are so so poorly understood and really not represented on our media at all, it's been very easy then to create this fear about, well, what we're going to do by changing the gender recognition process to what's called self-identification. We call it self-declaration, really, because you would still have to make a declaration of your intent, a declaration of intended permanence. So it's because uh, anybody can self-identify already. You don't need need anything else. Um, that this is somehow going to rewrite the definition of man and woman, and it's going to allow men into women's spaces. Well, men already go into women's spaces to do cleaning, to do plumbing, redecorating. So. You know, we don't have this hard and fast rule. And actually, most young boys will have gone into the ladies at some point with their mothers when their mothers needed to use the loo or even when they needed to use the loo. So so it's not a, a rigidly gendered space in the way that is portrayed. Where Where this is coming from is a fear that men will take any excuse to invade women's spaces. Most trans women I talk to about this 
we'll talk, you know, we, we, when we, we get to this point about talking about transition stories, the, the most scary moment, or one of the most scary moments for trans women is going into the women's lose for the first time. Um, because you become acutely aware of your appearance, your behaviour, you don't want to stand out, you just want to go in, do your business, clean up and disappear off. Um, and which is what most people do in these places. So the idea that a man would intentionally go through some kind of gender recognition process in order to go and perv on or assault women, well, it hasn't happened anywhere else in the world which has a self-declaration process for gender. So you then have to ask the question, why would British men be different from those anywhere else in the world where this applies. And this applies, you know, in many countries in Europe, South America, lots of American states, even applies in Pakistan. So, you know, what sets British people, British men apart in this way? And I think that's actually quite an offensive uh, portrayal or an offensive assertion uh, for British men. And also it wouldn't afford them any protection because if they went in, dressed as a woman to commit an assault on a woman, it would still be an offence. They would still be convicted if the evidence was there, which presumably it would be. And actually, if they had gone through with a gender recognition process in order and then use that as part of their defence, well, there are ways to invalidate statutory declarations because it's plainly there for nefarious purpose, and it would probably increase the person's sentence. So actually that would be a deterrent, not an encouragement. So, you know, trans people have got to live. Um, and, And why should we be prevented from doing the things that we've done for decades without problem because suddenly there's a fear that men might abuse the system, but there's actually no evidence that men are using, abusing the system. So that, that's so why th- I think the debate has become very fractious, because you've got a philosophical position on one end and people trying to live their lives on the other end. So do you think that the, um, I suppose, the, 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 the fear that men would, take advantage or at least could potentially think that that um that sort of fear misunderstands the safeguards that are already in place the i suppose the fear would be that i don't know uh, the the example is often given of a um male rapist becomes a trans woman or identifies declared as a trans woman and goes into for example a prison uh so do you think that that argument that is a threat relies on a sort of naivety even if that's maybe not too generous a word or um, an ignorance perhaps of the various steps that people need to go through the safeguards already in place what what do you think about that argument i think it's playing on ignorance um because people don't don't know unless they've encountered it very closely by by a family member or a close friend. They don't know what trans people. This is focused really on trans women, 
Uh, they don't know what trans women actually have to go through. They don't want, know what trans women do. And the media portrayal of trans people has been pretty appalling for most of the last 30 years. Because, it, as I say, it, it's focused very much on the surgical moment. So it creates this narrative that you wake up one morning, go to a medic, have your genitalia rearranged, and then suddenly, bang, you're a woman. And there's no concept you know, the, the impression that that's all done in a couple of hours because that's how long the television programme lasts. And there's no real concept that actually it can take you three or four years even to see a specialist for the first time. And then another two years before you see a surgeon. So, you know, six years is a hell of a long time to go through a surgical, um, to wait for surgical process if that's what you want to do. Um, so, so it plays on this ignorance and there is, I mean, given that the media narrative of trans people hasn't exactly been that supportive for the last 30 years, especially in the current environment, if there were lots of trans women, well, actually, if there were hardly any trans women doing this abusive stuff in women's toilets, it would be plastered all over the newspapers and it isn't. So it can't be happening in any great numbers, if at all. So I suppose it isn't, doesn't. Or the, the fear, at least, seems to me not that it's trans women doing this, but uh, men who are not trans women who are taking advantage of um, the sort of protections that are put in place for trans people. And do you think that that is just a an argument based on ignorance then it is but but you do get men who go into women's loos now and they you know some do go in you know, if they're not going in as plumbers or cleaners they may dress up as plumbers or cleaners in in order to gain access to these spaces not that most most of them are policed in any way whatsoever um and men do commit offenses in these spaces and they commit some vile offenses in these spaces and that, that's horrible. And that should, you know, that should stop. We should address those problems as much as we possibly can. But you're picking on the wrong, wrong target if you're saying that trans women do these. And the argument that trans women enable this to happen, well, that's rather, rather weak as well, isn't it? Because if trans women didn't exist, are you saying that these men would not do this? So... Um, we have to address the problems of male violence in our society um, rather than trying to redefine women to exclude people it previously included. OK, thanks. Can we go on to another controversial claim then, which is that young people feel um, to feel pressured to, to sort of feel a certain way? Um, whether that's from parents, from professionals. Um, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say on this, but um, would you like to set the record straight from your experience? Um, there are all sorts of pressures on young people. Uh, and this particular viewpoint, again, plays on ignorance and it plays on a media narrative that people get pressurised pressurized into doing things. Um, and again, you can't say it never happens, but it happens in 
if it happens, it happens in so few people that, yes, that's an issue. If it does happen, we should, we should be encouraging um, people to make their own minds up rather than necessarily be pressured by other people. Um, but people are pressured in all sorts of different ways. I mean, I can remember being at school when I was a teenager and we had a religious revival and there was a kind of pressure to become a born-again Christian within the school. Um, you know, that didn't last very long for most people, but it was there. Um, and it, it's, there is this kind of anti-LGBT sex and relationships education. We shouldn't teach people about people who are gay because it will encourage people to be gay well that that was rubbish in the 80s and 90s but we're seeing the exact same argument now we shouldn't teach people about trans because it will encourage people to be trans well there's nothing wrong with raising the question and asking the question but the way you address that is by more information being out in the public domain so that people can read that and say either yes I relate to that, or no, that isn't what I am. Um, and I think better visibility of trans people across the media, and, and life is a lot easier now than it was 20 years ago um, with the advent of the internet. But I think having better visibility will, will re reduce the number of people who are referred to medics. Um, for, for the wrong reasons, as it were. Not that I think there are that many. Anyway, you have, I think, the Tavistock and Portman Clinic, which uh, Gender Identity Development Service, which is the under-18 service in London, I think currently has a waiting list of around two years to see a, psychi uh, a specialist. It's not necessarily a psychiatrist. So that's not exactly rushing people through it either. Um. I talked about social transition at the beginning being quite a terrifying thing as opposed to a medical transition. Uh, the medics all like to think the medical transition is where you get the heebie-jeebies. It, it really isn't. It's the social transition, which is the difficult bit. Um, and so if you get a kind of this idea of social contagion, um, I, I don't think... I think there's probably been two or three cases that have been reported in the media, but I'm not sure I would entirely trust that because um, I want to know what the motive of the person leaking the story was uh, and what the definition they were using of being trans and, and transition was. So um, children is, is always a, a kind of particular touch point in, in issues like these. But most trans people know they are different without necessarily having the language to define it by the age of about seven or eight. So therefore, there are probably half to two thirds of trans people know they're trans while they're in primary school. So it's not a sexuality thing. It's an identity thing. And they might not have the words to express it. Uh, it's. I mean, I, I surmise from my own experience that because um, I, I knew probably by the time I was five. Now, um, if you've got all the adults around you saying, no, no, you're wrong, don't be so silly. Well, that's quite a powerful disincentive, isn't it, really? If, if, if the main 
adults in your life are busy telling you you're wrong, you will just clam up and, and quieten down. Um, and if we give people the support they need to explore what they need to explore, to come to the right decision for them, and this is not just for children, it's for anybody, then that has to be a good thing. And there's a big focus for some reason on people who detransition as if the whole transition thing therefore is wrong. Well, all the medical studies seem to indicate that regret rates for transition are about two to three percent. So 97 to 98 percent of transition people are very happy with what's gone on. Um, you compare that to, say, prostate cancer, where the treatments for for regret rates, which uh, treatment for prostate cancer is about 20%. So why are we focusing on a treatment program, a treatment path, which has a very, very low regret rate and ignoring many more people who go through particular treatments with a much far higher regret rate? Why are we not looking at that? Um, so Martin has had to go. So I'm uh, Steve and taking over the questioning. Um, Helen, thank you for all that explanation. Um, now, I'm, I'm conscious that we've sort of been raising the issues that perhaps appear in the media, but actually, as I think you've explained rather well, some of them perhaps aren't um, issues that really, really need urgent focus. So I, I'm actually interested to hear with you, what, what issues should we be talking about to actually improve the lives and experiences of, um, uh, of trans people? Um, you know, I, I, for example, often read and hear about some of the horrible abuse people get and and hate crimes an issue, but I'm sure there's many others. So is there anything you think that we really should be thinking about and focusing on more? Yeah, I mean, to give some background to where we are now, um, Theresa May raised the issue of Gender Recognition Act reform, I think is something that the Conservative government could do, because at the time it was seen as small and non-controversial, as a useful sort of diversion, as it were, from all the Brexit stuff that was going on, so that it could point to the Tories being able to do something positive for a community, and it had generally cross-party support at that point. Um, it's not necessarily the battle that trans people would have wanted at that point. Um, waiting lists, as I've talked about a couple of times already, to see specialists are horrendously long. The NHS has continually stated that the maximum waiting list to see a specialist in this area should be the same as the maximum time to see a specialist in any other area, which is 18 weeks. And the, uh, all of the gender identity clinics across the country now have times which are measured in years. Um, I think the shortest one is about 18 months currently, uh, and the longest one is four to five years that has given statistics. So we really need to, you know, put a lot more energy and put more resources into that transition pathway uh, and making it, I mean, there, the NHS has taken steps to make it more patient-led rather than having to tick a set of boxes, which psychiatrists expect. Um, but there's still a lot of levels of reforms going, which are needed. And the, in Wales, what's, what's going on is interesting because NHS Wales have reformed um, their gender identity service provision. It's still at a very early stage, um, but it looks as though that might be a successful model to look at for the rest of the country. But certainly, you know, to, to wait three or four years before you even see somebody for the first time to talk about what you're going to do um, and 
typically people at that point of crisis, when they go and talk to the medic, the GPs in the first instance, that's a long, long time to be left in crisis. So we need much more resources, much more investment into the NHS. You talked about um, the abuses that people face, hate crime for trans people, because it's measured separately, transphobic hate crime has increased um, dramatically since in the last four years since the Brexit referendum. Um, and there's no sign of that stopping at the moment. Um, and so we need to kind of have, a, we need to re-engage the media with the, the, the issues that trans people currently have, rather than this manufactured, as I see it, manufactured debate uh, around this thing. We know, we've just seen, you know, the, the whole manufactured debate around things like last night, the proms, the media loves a good manufactured debate. And actually, it'd be much better if we could focus them on the issues that trans people face. There is there are issues in terms of employment discrimination. Far too many trans people are still kept in low paying jobs, find it difficult to get jobs. Um, there is discrimination at schools as well. There are some horrific statistics about um, at, it's probably quite an old statistic now, but um, one that I used to use in, in presentations a few years back was that 25% of trans children at school had experienced transphobic abuse from a teacher. You know, so things like that we need to nail down. So it's about equality, employment opportunities, those kind of things. Um, and Gender Recognition Act is one one point on a journey, whereas ongoing abuse, access to healthcare, those are things which go on for, for a number of years, or in some cases, all the way through people's lives. And we really want to sort the long-term issues out. Um, and whilst Gender Recognition Act reform would be welcome, because it removes some of the dehumanising things around it, it wasn't massively high on trans people's wish lists. Yes, those are certainly things that we should hear more about. Um, I, I wonder, just as a follow-up question, some of those issues sound like things that maybe you could have a sort of government policy response to, um, such as you know, increasing access to health services. But some of them also sound like things that might be quite hard to change without sort of wider kind of um, cultural acceptance and things. Is that is that your sense too? Is it a wider debate or is it... Um, really about a specific you know government being being sort of better on this issue on the on the on this set of issues yeah i think that's you're right i mean the nhs nhs england nhs wales nhs scotland are in, independent of government in many ways so uh the issues around health funding um are really issues for those nhs bodies but department for health in england can give various directives and, and, and make various state ministerial statements to, to provide different emphases. So we could do with some of that. But yes, by and large, it is about cultural acceptance. It's why in 2009, when I helped set up Transmedia Watch, there were five of us who set, set the organisation up. But part of the reason I got involved with that was precisely because media is the way to win those cultural battles if you like to, to sort of spread understanding if you're going to rely on a 
you know, a few tens of thousands of trans people to educate 60 to 70 million people. That's, a, you know, a thousand people for each trans person to go and educate. Well, that's a huge ask and it isn't going to happen. So we need the media to be more responsible in the way that they report these things. And to be quite honest, you know, every the way that every mainstream media organisation from the BBC downwards has generally represented trans issues. Well, this particular Gender Recognition Act debate has been fundamentally wrong. You know, it's been misleading and that's, that's not good journalism. Um, and in places where the BBC, you know, the BBC, for example, now seems to be once again fighting for its future in some way. Well, you know, it's alienated most trans people now because they just see the repeated misreporting on this issue with no, no steps really taken to clarify or correct the record. So why would trans people trust it? And I'm sure you have will have the same arguments with the you know, same or same points coming from various disability groups or Black Lives Matter groups and so on. So and that that's before you get onto the whole, you know, is BBC left biased or right biased? Was BBC Brexit biased or Remain biased? So, you know, the BBC really does need to step up its game in this area. And that was the, the finding of uh, Lord Justice Leveson in the Leveson report. Uh, about the mainstream press. He said, whilst there's no doubt that the mainstream press has stepped up its game somewhat, there is a considerable journey for them to, you know, there's a considerable distance for them to go, i.e. you're not doing anywhere near enough in this issue. So, yeah, we you can't legislate for all of this. In fact, there are, the, the Equality Act makes it illegal to discriminate. The part of the problem here is being able to prove that discrimination. You know, how, how would a trans person realistically prove discrimination if they're not offered a job? You know, it's a very difficult thing to ask somebody who's probably got no resources to prove. Mm. I think that gives us a great chance to segue into sort of the next part, which we wanted to discuss the kind of political context around uh, some of these debates. Um, so let's... Um, come on to talk about some of the more controversial things we've heard about in the news. And I think perhaps it might be, they may maybe sort of unhelpful debates sometimes in the media. Um, so the few, here's a few examples of ones that uh, I think most people will have come across. So relatively recently we had uh, the sort of issue around comments made by JK Rowling and the sort of fallout from that. Um, people may also recall the back during the Labour leadership um, uh, campaign. Um, and of course, Helen, we know you're Liberal Democrat and not Labour, but the, the controversy around the Labour campaign for trans rights and the idea of expulsion from the party and so on. Um, um, we had that issue. We also had, uh, I think, a while ago, some controversy which, um, or certainly a reaction to, to Jo Swinson when she was Lib, Lib Dem leader talking about this issue. Um, so it would be interesting to get your your take on how these kind of debates have played out. The the sort of um, I, it can seem like a uh, a sort of slightly sensationalist media tone, and maybe a, a sort of angry um, sort of tone on social media. Um, so yeah, I'd be really interested to get your uh, your general 
uh, take on on those those kind of um, controversies, uh, and whether you think the debate is happening in a helpful way for for sort of progressing uh, the sort of um, trans rights, etc. Okay. I mean, in terms of Labour, yeah, I'm a Lib Dem, so it feels a bit <laughs> horrible to try and comment on that one. Um, again, it's about enabling people to feel safe, I think, and trans people fe- you know, being able to feel welcomed into the political party. And I suspect there is a group of people who pushed and pushed and pushed at a particular line, and it became, unless you agree with us, you should be kicked out. Um, <laughs> with a Lib Dem hat on, I would say that's a typically Labour thing to do. So, but I, I would hope it's not about necessarily holding a view, but more about how you're expressing that view and the impact of expressing that view in, in the particular way that it has been expressed. So without knowing a huge amount, because they've erupted during the general election when I had a few other things to do, um, it's difficult for me to comment. And similarly on, on Joe Swinson, um, the media created you know, picked up on trans issues, I think, as a sidelining issue for the Lib Dems. You know, if, again, you think that it's going to affect, it's probably going to affect 100,000 people max in terms of its, uh, you know, legal implications. Um, yes, there's been you know, this misreporting which has created this fear for the 30 million women in the country, although it does appear that actually... Of us, the majority of women haven't bought into this sphere. Um, you could argue that the impact is a bit bigger than that, but in my head, that's a sidelining issue which the media used to push push the Lib Dems into irrelevance again, rather like they did with gay sex and cannabis in 2017. So, you know, as a party, my feedback feedback into our election review was we need to get a little bit better at dealing with these sidelining issues and just concentrating on what what actually affects most people. Uh, you know, in my own constituency, we knocked, my, my team and I knocked on about seven to 8,000 doors, um, you know, about 10%, well, no, actually it's more, more about 20% of the constituency we knocked on. Um, and the team reported that trans issues only came up on one doorstep out of that 7,000. There was more comment on social media, but one person at the 7,000 doors that we knocked on talked about it. So it's not a big issue in most people's heads. Most people seem, I think, are, you know, as confused as, as anything about this because they, 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 hear, they see these polarised debates and they, they don't get any of the background. So um, J.K. Rowling, right, well, there's the opposition has come from a very unusual position. You're expecting the opposition to come from the usual evangelical right. And this time it seems to have come from a kind of group of left-wing women um, who seem to be pursuing a a a philosophy with the same zealousness uh, as the evangelical right do. And that's kind of wrong-footed a lot of Labour, which I suspect is why the Labour trans campaign had the impact that it had. Um, now, we're used to, we've, we've seen these arguments being presented about trans women posing a danger or enabling a danger, which we've discussed. We've seen those arguments 
being presented by a very small group of people who call themselves feminists for a number of years or decades even, and they haven't changed. They haven't moved on. Now, the government recognised these as pretty much rubbish when they passed the Gender Recognition Act. They dismissed them. The media had generally dismissed them about 30 or 40 years ago. So suddenly they've got traction again. And so the whole J.K. Rowling thing, um, well, that just was a rehash of the same old arguments. Um, and I'm, I'm personally quite interested in how women get trapped into this way of thinking and become radicalised as part of it, which then means that it is, it is exactly like arguing with somebody who's in a religious cult, because whatever you say will be twisted around somehow. Um, and, well, they always have some higher proof than you, and you'll never be able to meet their standards of proof. Or when you get close, they'll suddenly switch to something else or something else. And about 10 years ago, I likened uh, arguing with these women as a bit like trying to nail jelly to a ceiling. And all you end up with is a ceiling full of nails and the jelly still on the floor. So you can't win those arguments with these people. And they, they seem to have some fairly um, unpleasant, shall we say, from a moderate perspective, unpleasant associates. And there does seem to be evidence that actually they're getting a lot of funding uh, and the campaign is being very well organised, <clears throat> actually, from the evangelical right in the States and in Australia. So it, there's, there's something which is, which is clicking with some women in this area, and I'd love to know what it is. And I fear that what the, this argument has done is played on the fears of women who have already experienced some level of abuse and it triggers a very strong emotional reaction and that they become very emotionally vested in it and it becomes very difficult to talk about any rationality. So you talked about earlier, Steve, that, you know, trans women in prison. Yeah, there was one case of a trans woman in prison who committed sexual assaults on other women. Um, and what the prison service had then admitted is that they hadn't followed the protocols that they had recently put in place. They had transferred her into a woman's prison and they admitted that was a mistake. And they shouldn't have done that based on the risk assessment that they knew they should have done at the time. So, you know, so that, that suddenly this one case taints all trans people. And that, to me, surely is the definition of bigotry and discrimination. Mm. One person from a group does this, and therefore all people in this group are capable of doing it. So we should box all of these people in or restrict these people's rights. No, you had one bad apple there. You do some, you punish that person. You don't punish everybody else who's like them. It's rather like saying, oh, right, because we caught somebody driving at 90 miles an hour down the M4, we're now going to say to all Muslims, you can't drive at more than 55 miles an hour on motorways. Well, hold on. You know, <laughs> that's rather an extreme punishment for a group of people who may or may not have anything to do with the original offender. Mm. I mean, that, that's, that's very powerful. And I think um, 
shows that uh, that there's an awful lot of this debate seems like quite divorced from reality, actually. And you t- and you we touched on quite a few of the things in the earlier section about that that J.K. Rowling put in her letter, and actually a lot a lot of the issues she talked about was the sort of women's safe space thing, but it didn't seem that. And I'm sure it came from her from a, it, it, it reads like it came from a sort of genuine, um, you're not a vindictive place, but it, it sounds like a lot of the things that she cites are just, just not really grounded in reality and, and grounded in, in, like you say, this, this sort of fear of, of something she doesn't understand all that well. Well, and also I think in the subsequent media reports, you know, it turned out that she had suffered abuse and that, that fits the pattern that I, I, I thought of you know is being worked out and so I have every sympathy that you know she's she's obviously scared she's been played along um and she's bought this line wholesale uh and she's lost the humanity in the whole uh area and I think partly you know she became famous for writing a set of books where it was more important to celebrate difference and diversity and recognise that and allow that to flourish. And suddenly she seems to be saying the exact opposite when it comes to trans people. So you've got a whole, I mean, my daughter is, <laughs> was a Harry Potter fan or is a Harry Potter fan, you know, and she finds it really sad that the person who created this universe that she loves doesn't actually seem to believe it. And because she's my daughter, obviously that hits home much harder for her. Mm. Um, so she's cut rolling is destroying some of her own legacy. And when, you know, when actors in the films have started to say, well, actually, no, I think she's wrong. Um, there's, there's problems. You also have this whole thing about trans people are trying to silence other people. Well, that's working really well, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of how many trans people have columns in national papers or get regular slots on television? Very, very few. You know, there's one trans woman I know who appears on some of the breakfast, the early morning television programs occasionally. I don't know any trans woman who has a regular column in a national newspaper. And yet we get accused of silencing all of these people who go onto the media. I can remember Jermaine Greer complaining on Newsnight that she'd been silenced. Um, well, going on Newsnight doesn't sound very much like being silenced to me. Um, and so Rowling is buying into this whole, oh, we should stop cancel culture. Well, again, if you look at that from ground level up, what does that mean? Does it mean that people can't object to what she's saying? That seems quite an extreme view. Um, are we really saying that if somebody is invited to uh, appear on a platform, that that invitation cannot be rescinded if that person subsequently says something which is so offensive that people don't want to hear it? You know, again, that's, that's rather, it's a very, very extreme view of what no platforming or silencing or cancel culture, what actually it is. Um, And actually, a lot of this is talking about free speech with no consequences. How dare people criticise somebody for expressing an opinion? Well, but isn't that this other group of people exercising their free speech? Do they not have 
the ability to make decisions. Are we all, all supposed to bow down and worship at the feet of these our lords, new lords and masters in the media, the commentators in the media? That does that doesn't make any sense to me from any kind of liberal perspective. I wanted to take a step back and to reflect on the sort of broader way these debates have sort of seemingly been sort of roused, reported in the media, and uh, and seem to have had quite a sort of intense feeling to them. And I suppose you can make a case that that could be a good thing for sort of raising awareness of issues. Um, but you could also perhaps make a case that um, the sort of, the sort of intense nature, it might have a, have a sort of uh, unhelpful backlash. What's your sense? Do you think that these things, the examples that I've given being high up in the sort of media agenda have been helpful or, or unhelpful? I think they'd be extremely unhelpful. Uh, I don't know of a trans person whose mental health hasn't suffered over the last year um, before COVID. Um, and I think what's been going on, over, you know, up until the beginning, you know, end of July also hasn't helped people. You know, I had a Facebook friend today who said actually she'd been tipped into depression and had to take a number of weeks away just to try and get her head back into, into the right space. Um, and that's largely caused by the relentlessness of the media coverage. Um, and when you know something is being misreported and you can't get it corrected and it just keeps resurfacing again and again and again, what you end up having to do is divorce yourself from it, which then means you cease to play a part in the society in the way which you would want to. And that's actually very damaging. So, and a large part of it has been repeatedly framed in problematic ways. For a number of years, trans people were portrayed as enemies of free speech, going back to this one. You know, we were no-platforming people relentlessly. And it wasn't actually happening. And no, nowhere, I, I got close to doing this in the parliamentary inquiry, but nowhere have you seen the kind of, but this doesn't make any sense, this, this line of argument that you're, you're pursuing. Um, that defence is nowhere to be found in mainstream media. So because the, 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 the issue wasn't one of our making, it wasn't one high up on our priority list, it has been framed very badly. If media companies are, not, are resistant to changing the way it's done, and it has been relentless and of increasing intensity, it is burning people out. Um, and we got to a point in April and May where I didn't know a single trans person who had means who wasn't looking at leaving the country. Now, that to me is a huge indictment, and I will include myself in that. And I, at the back of my head, I still have, if I need to, where can I go? And I haven't thought about things like that until last year. Now, that is not a healthy place for anybody to be, where you're no longer feeling at home in your own country. And I'm in my mid-50s. I don't know. I've never lived in any other country. So... That's a huge, huge indictment 
Uh, and it hit my wife actually back in the spring when we were talking about it because she turned around and said, where would you want to go? And I said, I, well, that's it. I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay here, but I don't know if I can. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm sad to hear that. And I, I'm sad to hear partly from the point of view is that one thing I, I really like about this country is that I, I feel that somewhere, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, we, we are uh, sort of, as you said earlier, polite and sort of tolerant nation. So when it seems that things are getting um, less comfortable for people, I, that, that does make me sad. Yeah, and, and, and it makes me very sad. Um, and I think if it was just me thinking it, I wouldn't bring it up. But it isn't just me thinking it. It's every trans person I know who has a reasonable amount of money who can get out of this country. And every single one of them, I mean, I know people who are now doing it, um, so it's no longer just theory, it's practice for some of the people I know. Um, and I share your, your kind of optimism in a way, Steve. I think, you know, we have a reputation in this country of being pragmatic, of being reasonable, of being fair-minded. Um, but I th- something has changed as far as I can see in this country in the last four years. So that the intolerant, the unreasonable, um, has, has become much more pervasive. And because of the way that our media is structured, where it likes conflict, it's given much more air. So it bre- it's breathing much more freely. And that that is not the country that I knew even four or five years ago. Yeah. And then we have this, I think, kind of conversation on lots of issues of, of this kind. I mentioned before we we talked about, talk about race on this podcast and things like that, and, and when it's um, felt quite fraught and things at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if we can try and finish on a more positive note and along the question of right, how do we have a better, healthier conversation about this? And often we frame it on this podcast of like, how do you sort of find a middle ground? And I think what I mean by that is how can we have a conversation that reaches out to some of the people who perhaps have been influenced by some of these unhelpful media narratives um, uh, and who aren't as supportive of, um, or may- maybe it's not always supportive, maybe it's more just aren't particularly well educated on these issues and, and end up sort of being oppositional to things like, um, well, helpful reforms that we've touched on. Um, do, do you have an idea of how we have that sort of, um, better national conversation around gender identity? I think it's about putting the humanity back into it, which is why I started the way I did, because a lot of these discussions become very abstract, very theoretical, and forget that we're talking about the way that people live their lives. And I think that's the only real way that we can do it uh, so that, and I really appreciate the opportunity that, that you and Martin have given me today to, to be able to reframe that discussion in the way that I wanted to do. Um, and it, it's, it's very difficult to do on mainstream media because you have probably 90 seconds to get a point across. And I'm aware I probably rambled for four or five minutes on most of my answers. So, um, but it's about looking at people and what, what do people need to do to live? And it's understanding that the debate is not balanced. You've got a, a group of people who on one side are looking at losing 
the ability, as we see it, to function in our society, that's the risk we we run, as opposed to another group of people who are looking to feel safe against an unknown threat. That doesn't seem to me to be particularly balanced. And if you if you applied that fear to any other group, it would be rightfully called out. Um, so I think it's about reframing the whole media discussion. Mm. And, and Helen, it's been fantastic to have you on and uh, for us to understand better a lot of these issues that that, um, that are quite hard to get one's head around, I think. Um, and we're really glad, I'm certainly really glad that, that we, you know, in our small way, provided a chance for you to sort of actually have that space to talk through these things in more depth. So I think that's very important. Um, now, I can't let you go um, as a Lib Dem uh, candidate without briefly discussing uh, last week's news that Ed Davey won the leadership election. Yeah. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that election and, uh, and on where the party, uh, or where you'd like to see the party go from now? Ah, I think, uh, well, I, I made no secret of being on Ed's sort of supported base uh, from the beginning of the campaign. Uh, which for me was quite an opposition because I know Layla more. Uh, I like Layla an awful lot. Um, so I think that the campaign, uh, having this is my third leadership campaign that I've, I've either been a part of or witnessed, um, and this was by far the most bad-tempered of, of the three because it was played out largely on social media because of the COVID crisis. And I don't think that did any favours to groups, various groups of people. Uh, I'm naturally quite pleased that Ed, Ed won. Um, and I, I agree with him. I think we need to engage, be better, much better at engaging the electorate, um, listening to what they want. And this, but I think the key point here, which isn't coming across, is about and explaining why liberalism meets and is a really good solution to the problems that they face. And so the extremism that we're, we're facing with our current government um, and, you know, the extremism that we did face with Corbyn on the other side, I don't think Starmer is, is anywhere near as bad as that, but there are natural problems with the way that both Labour and Conservative Party deal with what we would consider to be liberal issues, um, they don't have the solutions for a lot of the problems that we face. And, and you know, some of the issues you just talked about, like free speech, well, that's, that's not really a conservative or Labour thing, but that is very much a liberal Democrat issue. Um, so I think, you know, a message which talks about a sustainable economy, a fairer society, a more caring society, um, those those are messages which we need to make resonate a lot better and since i only joined in 2015 and whilst i've been a member the party has not been very good at making those connections uh i mean in in chippenham we got a nine percent increase in our vote uh, in what was supposed to be a leave seat it, you know at the um top 50 seats we were the best performing leave seat in the country uh, in terms of vote improvement. And I think a large part of how we did that here was explain why 
we wanted to do certain things. We weren't just going, stop Brexit. We were going, we need to stop Brexit because. And I think that that was what was missing, I think, in a lot of Lib Dem campaigning in the 2019 election and probably in earlier elections too. So, so that's where I'm hoping that we will improve massively on. Um, and that will take time. Um, and I think the focus on the party connecting to its local roots and, and working well at local government uh, and using that as a springboard into Westminster, I'd like to think that was sound, but I, I'm, I'm aware of too many Lib Dem council areas which solidly refuse to return a Lib Dem MP. Um, so I think there's an element of national messaging which needs to improve on that. No, that, no, that that's all, all really fascinating. My, my um, sense uh, listening to the debates in the leadership contest was that uh, there was a lot of talk of kind of a grand sort of redefining of what the party was for in, in different language to that, but that those kind of noises. Uh, but then no one really said anything particularly clear or radical. I, I, I didn't detect anyway from the debates. Do you, do you think there's going to be a sort of um, a big sort of strategic change, like the party will become a, a movement for a rejoin or or something else, or or do you think it's more likely uh, that um, things kind of just rumble on as, as usual, and it's you know local government based and and sort of small L liberal and the rest? I I fear that the party won't change. I I think that it must change because I think people in this country now don't know who to trust. They're looking for something fresh and different. But I know that you can't just create that from scratch without significant resources. Um, so I, 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 I think we should go back to what liberalism really means and how it's applied. So, I mean, this is, this is one area, I guess, where it is quite clear, you know, that there is a pretty clear li liberal position on the free speech aspect and the, the you know the ability for people to be themselves and and fairness in in the way that we're treating marginalized groups and i think i, I don't want trans issues to be the touchstone for it but i think it, it is an interesting case study as to where liberalism can be the problem with using trans as that kind of case study is that because it's so badly understood, it's not a good one to use. And I think we'd be much better at finding things which resonate with the majority of people. So things, you know, people are concerned about the climate crisis, but I think people are also feeling that they're not represented very well. So I suspect that, you know, a campaign around electoral reform, and we're seeing more movement around that. I mean, I'm part of the Make Votes Matter um, grouping there and we are seeing more, more and more people beginning to stand stand up for uh, electoral reform in a meaningful way at both local and central government um, and I think having you making the case for that changing politics in that way so that as politicians we are allowed to um, consult and not supposed to be so definitive all the time and have to find solutions which work for our communities rather than having a particular idealistic viewpoint. 
I think that that could be potentially a very strong message going forward. And I think Lib Dems, because of the history of being in the centre ground, um, have a good good case to make for that. Uh, Helen, it's been brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for asking. Uh, no, it's our pleasure. Uh, and the final thing to say is just that we are the No Man's Land podcast and uh, do leave us a review or share us on social media. Uh, and goodbye.